Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Julian Schlossberg, uh, the author of Try Not to Hold It Against Me, A Producer's Life. Uh, Julian, thanks for being back on the show. Thank you, Sonny, for having me, and I'm always happy to be here. I uh, So I your, your, your guy reached out to me. He said, you know, Julian's got the audio book out now. Uh, would you would you like to have him back on the show? And I, I was like, yes, I would. I would like to. But I have to ask. Uh, so you you did read the book yourself. Yes, you. you... I did. Yes, okay. I did. Now, I have I have always wanted to get uh, an author who has read the book themselves on the show to talk about this, because I can imagine I here is my nightmare is sitting there and having to read the actual copy of a thing that I have published and not be able to, you know, kind of tinker with it. As I'm going, did you read it word for word? Were you making little changes as you went? What was the what was the process like? Well, as you pointed out, it was word for word. <laughs> and yes, I would sometimes read it and say, oy, oy, oy. <laughs> okay, I think on the next book, I'll, I'll put this in a little bit better, perhaps, you know. But by and large, I was pretty happy doing it, Sonny. You know, I was lucky enough to have spent nine years on the air. Uh, on radio in New York, first on WMCA and then WOR. So I had the ability at least to speak to the microphone. I often have met authors who write beautifully but are not articulate, which is interesting. You, you kind of think, like, oh, I see, the Lord giveth and the Lord tucketh away, you know. Uh, well, this is, you know, I, I like to joke that I have a face for radio and also a voice for writing uh, because I, you know, I I am one of these people who mostly, despite all of my various podcasts and whatnot, I like to just sit there and write because it's a little more solitary. I feel like you're putting yourself out there when you're when you're speaking the words more than when you're writing them. Do you do you not feel that uh, that that sort of, uh, I don't know, wall of separation? Well, it's clearly a wall of separation. Uh, on the other hand, if you've been raised as an only child, you like the attention. And so writing is solitary. It can get lonely, but reading it or feeling there's an audience somewhere makes you feel, oh, well, I'll get some more attention, perhaps. You know, <laughs> uh, there was a porn star named Marilyn Chambers. She made a movie called Insatiable. And I think that could be my life story, I guess. Well, that'll be number two, you know, insatiable <laughs> producers second life. Uh, well, I, so, all right. One, one last question on this, because it is I, again, I do. I do find it. I find it very interesting. Uh, the when you're when you're sitting there, you say, you know, you feel like you're performing for somebody. Does that change how you read it when you're when you're do you feel like you're having a conversation with the, yes. the listener? Like, how does yes. that how does that yeah, actually that work? Well, that's my goal. Even when I do interviews, uh, when I'm doing what you do. I want to feel that I'm having a conversation, not an interview. And all the interviews I've done, and I've done presidents, and I've done secretaries, I've done the biggest people uh, in many fields, Willie Mays, Quincy Jones. I mean, it goes on and on. I have no notes. I don't believe in it because once the person being interviewed sees you have notes, they know it's an interview. But if you're looking at someone, as you and I are doing now, into each other's eyes, mm -hmm. that the brain is a muscle that kind of says, oh, I'm having a talk. And that's what I prefer to, to do. It is. And, and I it's funny, as you, I, literally, as you were saying that I was pulling up my own notes because I do. I need the touchstone there. I need to be able to to, you know, just get get quotes and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, uh, and it is a crutch and I, I rely on it. But it's one of the reasons why I have not had two radio shows 
in New York City. <laughs> and and no, you have. But I, but I would say this. I study like it was a final in college. If I'm going to be doing President George H.W. Bush or I'm going to be talking to Clint Eastwood, I've memorized stuff in my head as a, you know what a mnemonic is, like sure. home, homes for the Great Lakes, H-Euron, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, Superior. I do the same so that I'm not going in unprepared, but I'm going in without notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's let's talk a little bit uh, about your you you uh, did a recent guest stint on Turner Classic Movies. You are interviewing uh, Elaine May, the director, writer, performer, uh, playwright. I, she's a multi hyphenate. Um, yes. Uh, about some of her movies. And uh, let's I want I want to talk about that a little bit because I want to talk about two two separate angles here. The first is Elaine May herself. Fascinating um, career. Uh, that you have uh, that you have been a participant in for now five decades. I mean, you you guys yeah. got together on uh, on um, uh, Mikey and Nikki, and there's there's a great story um, uh, about about that in your book. Could you could we could you could you tell everybody uh, once again? I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but just remind folks how you two got uh, acquainted with each other uh, over a very rough preview screening that Paramount put on. Well, that's true. I, uh, I went to Paramount as the head of production in the East Coast, which really didn't mean very much because there wasn't that much production in the East Coast. But we did do Saturday Night Fever. We did a few films there. Uh, the fact that I was the head of it really didn't mean anything because I couldn't say yes. If you can't say yes in a job, you're not the head of anything. Mm -hmm. you, all I could mm -hmm. say was no, and I'll get back to you. That was about it. Anyhow, I was told that uh, Elaine uh, May was on the phone. I was shocked. I didn't know her, I'd never met her, and I picked up the phone, and I said hello, and she said, uh, Warren Beatty tells me that you're okay for a studio executive. <laughs> Apparently, the bar wasn't too high. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. And she said, uh, I understand they're going to sneak my new movie, Mikey and Nikki." would you please make sure they don't put my name there because it's not a comedy and I'm totally associated with comedy. And I said, sure, I will. Do, and I went into the meeting and told the head of the studio, uh, she doesn't want her name. We can use Peter Falk, John Castavetes, but not Elaine. They said, no, we can use Elaine. I said, no, no, she's really specific about it. And they said, no, we're going we're gonna to use her name. And they did. And so I went to the screening in Washington with this man and Elaine and an audience. And the beginning of the film has some real comedy. And so the audience was having some fun. And then it turned tough and real and gritty. And the audience turned too. They felt they had been duped. And by the time it was over, they were people walking out, people booing. It was a terrible experience. And uh, I went into the manager's office, and Elaine came in, and there was a group of Paramount executives, including myself, and she said, uh, you know what a liar is? And I said, yeah. I, she said, well, that's what you are. And I said, why? And she said, well, you said I, my name wouldn't be in there. And the head of the studio said, I overruled him. And Elaine said, apparently... He was in charge of overruling people, and uh, that's how it started. I felt terrible. 
I had let down someone I had great admiration for, who had come through a friend in Warren, and uh, on the plane ride back, she wouldn't speak to me. So the next day, Sonny, I showed up at her home, and I said, let's go out together and look at all the theaters if they're cross-plugging Mikey and Nikki. And we went across the city to about 10 theaters. Most of them were not plugging it. We made them, I asked them to put up the plug, the cross plug, the trailer. And we started becoming friends. And she recognized I had been put in an, an untenable position, which I was. The mistake I made, which would never have happened a little later, was I should have told her. But I didn't because I didn't know her that well. And also I was just starting a new job. So it was all... A bad beginning, but it ended up being very close friends. And uh, I've produced all her plays and uh, have worked with her as her quasi-manager at times. Uh, and also, after Mikey and Nikki did not, uh, was not really handled well by Paramount, uh, Elaine May, Peter Falk, who starred in it, and I went to the studio and explained that her contract had been violated, and they said, uh, we said, we want the film, and they were kind enough to give us the film. And so I've distributed it ever since, from that rocky beginning in Washington to uh, for the last, oh, I don't know how many years, I'd say close to 45 years. Yeah. I Can we uh, drill down on that just a little bit? Because that that's a little more information um, than you had in your book. And I find this really interesting. So y- you go to you go to Paramount and you say uh, that her her contract has not been met. I, I'm just curious, what what was it that uh, you you specified in the contract? Was it just like it wasn't advertised correctly? It wasn't uh, given the proper rollout? It, like, what did you how did you convince every, them? every everything you could imagine was listed as a possibility, including what you're supposed to do when you have a studio movie, especially if you have someone who had already done a new leaf and heartbreak kid, is to have a first class uh, release, which includes spending an X amount of money, which they didn't spend, which included doing the distribution, which they didn't do. And, uh, and I had pointed out to the head of business affairs that Elaine had sued the same studio already on a new leaf. And so. I said, she's litigious, and I can tell you now there's going to be trouble. And they, at this point, they didn't, the film hadn't performed, they didn't care, they just wanted away from all of us. And uh, so that was a a, a happy ending. And uh, since that time, we've been able to play the film around the world. So it's uh, a a real, uh, as Richard Brody in the New Yorker calls it, a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. Well, I it, it it's uh, it, it just one last question on this before before I move on. I when 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 you say you guys uh when you when you bought the film, I mean, did you have to was there a did they ask for the production budget? Like were they were they did they ask for a payment of any sort or were they just like here you go. You you can have it. We're 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 they hands were, they were they were very generous and very kind about it. I think they felt that they really hadn't done what they should have done. Mm-hmm. So they, they was no, there was nothing that was uh, onerous at all about yeah. the deal. That's wild because I can't imagine that sort of thing happening today. I mean, you go, you go to David Zasloff and you're like, "Hey, uh, you, you messed up my my movie. It wasn't that expensive. Just give it back to me." Maybe like, yeah. "Yeah, no, 
No, that yeah. that's going to be twenty twenty million. Can you, you maybe yeah. you can swing that? Well, there's there's a, it, there's more to it, Sonny, than that. But <laughs> you're absolutely right. You know, the studio system has changed greatly over the years that I've been doing this, which is sadly sixty years. <laughs> that's a long time. But uh, when I represented Aaliyah Kazan, he had a deal with Jack Warner on a face in the crowd, baby doll in America, America that after 10 years, the film was revert to him. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he owned it. No money paid. That was that. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock had a deal very similar, where his movies, after a certain period, he would be the owner. Bob Hope had a couple of films that way. So it's not unusual. It's just, uh, obviously, it's not something publicized for reasons that make sense. It's no one's real business, yeah. in fact. Yeah. No, it, it and and it is. I mean, I think th there's a similar story about uh, Apocalypse Now, I believe. Apocalypse Now uh, reverted to Francis Ford Coppola after a certain amount of time, um, which, you know, uh, it, it has led to multiple releases. And it's good in a way, not just for the, you know, sense of ownership that the uh, that the director has, but also, you know, it it keeps these things alive. Well, um, yes, uh, even though now with streaming. Uh, and with the ability on your set to just plunk in something, uh, it's alive. There, there, it's not the way it used to be where they were. When I grew up in the business, there were revival theaters, and they they, they, that was their specialty, reviving movies that uh, either couldn't be shown on television or weren't because of certain sexual or violent aspects, so they could bring it back. Or... Just to say, hey, guess what? There's two great Hitchcocks playing at the New Yorker in New York City. I want to see it. I remember seeing uh, a two, what was it, uh, Rules of the Game? Mm -hmm. Oh, just incredible movies that were being revived. Foreign film, for example, would also be included there because television wouldn't play a foreign film in those days. They didn't want dubbed on, and they certainly didn't want to put titles on. It's interesting now, Sonny, you know, titles for a long time were very, very uh, a real problem for most distributors. But now that CNN and Fox all have these credits <laughs> running underneath, the public is more apt to handle it. You know, that's actually a fascinating uh, observation. I'd never thought about it that way, but maybe that is kind of what has given audiences the ability to focus on two things at this on the screen at once in a way in a way they didn't used to because I, I you know anytime I, I I read about Netflix and subtitles the, the thing that the Netflix always says is a most people watch foreign films in dub most people watch foreign TV shows in dub they prefer the dubbing however a large number of uh, American audiences just have subtitles on all the time. They have them on all the time and that and and they do it either because they don't want to listen too loud or because they they're kind of half paying attention to the show, you know, uh, and but, don't forget my group who are hard of hearing. And then and then you have and then you have absolutely the the the, you know, uh, audiences are getting slightly older, which leads to um, more more uh, of that issue. No, it's it's that's a, the Chirons. I'm going to blame it on the Chirons from now on. That's what yes. I'm well, that that could be another song. Blame it on the Chirons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh, true. It's true. I, I'm I'm 
fascinated by the changes that I've seen. Um, and dubbing was a very interesting process. I remember working with Raul Julia dubbing a film he was in and uh, fell in love with an actor I had only liked from afar. Certain times you meet people who, let's say, you've really liked and cared for, and they turn out to be someone you'd rather not be in a foxhole with. Uh, and uh, But the other time, it's nice when it's someone like Raul, who yeah. was just as sweet as sweet could be. Which What movie was that? Tango Bar was the name of it. Okay. And it's one of the many movies I had that very few people ever heard of. <laughs> I have not seen it. I'm sorry. I will admit. Uh, I think that there, I think your <laughs> listeners would probably amount to all have said, would say the same thing. No, I mean, I, it was interesting. I had a library. I owned a company called Castle Hill Productions, mm -hmm. and I had a library of literally over 500 movies. I, I was probably one of the largest independent distributors in the country, if not the largest, I don't know. But what was important was that you never knew on a film that you had what years later might turn out to be successful even at the time, even if at the time it wasn't. For example, I had a movie called Across the Tracks. Mm -hmm. The stars were Rick Schroeder and Carrie Snodgrass. At the time, they both were named. Rick, Rick had, was doing, I think, NYPD Blue, and I think mm -hmm. he'd been the little, boy, little man in the boxing movie, The Champ. Uh, or, or was he with, uh, yeah, I think that was where he was. And then Carrie had done Diary of a Mad Housewife, so they were known. The third title that came up said, Introducing Brad Pitt. Mm -hmm. Now, that meant, at that time, zero. Right. And eventually, it was Brad Pitt that sold that movie. Yeah. So you just don't know. You don't know. Yeah, I'm sure. No, uh, the, the Castle Hill uh, stuff I find fascinating. And you, you uh, I think you wound up selling Castle Hill to uh, Shout Factory, right? That's, that, that's, that's right. Yeah. Um, are you still involved with them at all? Do you do you uh, do any any work with uh, the folks no. at Shout? Okay. No, no. I I formed my own company. I have other films and projects that I'm doing. Uh, but they were very good to me. There was no. I had no, and no complaints. Which of course in our world is very com very surprising since everybody's always complaining. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's for sure. All right. So I I, I just want to jump back to Mikey and Nikki for a sec here, because uh, it's it, it is, as, as you mentioned, in that the Richard Brody quote is, I think, pretty I think people largely agree with Brody at this point that this is a considered to be a classic, certainly of, you know, 19 late the, the 1960s, 1970s, all tourist era, you know, that kind of re, uh, almost almost neorealism in New York. Right. That 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 vibe. Um, uh, and I was watching it. I was watching it last night. I put it on last night to prepare for this. Uh, and it was interesting to me that it was on two. It's on two different streamers. It was on HBO Max and uh, the Criterion, Criterion channel, yes. which is where I I chose to watch it on the Criterion channel. You know, a classy gentleman yeah. like myself. Um, but it was. Uh, but it's 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 fascinating to think about the world of streaming, as you mentioned now, versus the the world of revival art house theaters. So when you you're taking this movie around for decades before streaming comes around, how what was the process like? Would you just call up a theater in LA be like, "Hey, you're doing a series on this. You would you like or or did the calls just come to you?" Like, what was the, the promotion like on yeah, your the, end? The the calls pretty much came to me because if you wanted Mikey and Nikki, some would call Paramount and then they Paramount would give them my number 
or the company's number, or um, the word got out. You know, uh, when you when you have a, a product that people want, as you know, people find you. They got. I did not go out and sell the movie. The movie sold itself. Mm. Uh, and then Quentin Tarantino heralded it. Then Martin Scorsese held, heralded it. I mean, it was constantly being talked about, and that was very helpful. I mean, Stanley Kaufman, who was one of the most revered critics in this country, was writing for The New Republic, and he said, Mikey and Nicky is one of the 10 best films of the last decade. Decade! So, you know, there are people who are real fans of the movie and people who you and I respect who feel that way. So... It's been a, a wonderful thing, and working with Elaine is just a joy. We did the TCM interviews, and uh, she doesn't give interviews. I always call her the Greta Garbo of our time. You know, she just doesn't want to do these things, but we were able to get her on, and it was uh, seems to be people are still writing about it, so I'm kind of pleased that I was able to grovel and beg and get her to do it. I, I feel like there's been a real Elaine May revival over the last. I feel like she's a favorite of film Twitter, right? Like people, people, people love to uh, talk about her movies. I feel like there's even been uh, kind of an Ishtar rehabilitation in in recent years. People, you know, saying that 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 movie got a bum rap, um, which uh, I I think is really fascinating. I I, I I I'm curious. Maybe 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 you don't want to say, don't want to speak for her, but is she aware of this kind of burgeoning? Elaine oh, May yes. groupie dumb in she she is and she's quite pleased and I'm I make her aware of it uh, all when I can once again the New Yorker said in Ishtar's case a maligned masterpiece mm -hmm. Manchester Guardian called it a brilliant movie I mean you know it was way ahead of its time it was prescient about the Middle East it's one of the funniest there and it also has one great thing going for it for anyone who wants to perform or be an artist or be creative, it says, look, you don't have to be great. If you love what you're doing, do it. Go out and do it. And uh, there's so many people who, as you know, Sonny, have two jobs. They have their job and show business. That's the, you know, we have no royalty in this country except show business and, and sports figures and, of course, rock and roll. Mm. So, uh, or music, I better say. I don't think Taylor Swift is rock and roller, or maybe she is for all I know. Yeah. Uh, but that's our royalty. And so, yes, I think Ishtar shows a lot about that, including what she predicted for the Middle East, which has sadly come true. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody should go back and give Ishtar another chance. If you, if you were one of the, the folks who did not love it the first time around or frankly just skipped it because they heard oh class uh, disaster you know why would i why would i spend the two hours to watch it just go go check it out um the uh i i i i'm glad you mentioned stanley kaufman who's one of my favorite critics i actually have several collections of his behind me right now i may even be able to find uh that uh, that review you were talking about but i want to i want to take i want to take issue with something you wrote in your book uh Julian, I'm 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 sorry. I'm, I I rarely put people on the spot like this, but well, I'm, 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 I'm issue happy. Before. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm I'm ready. I'd like to have an issue taken. All right. So uh, in your book, you write, uh, "quote At that time, movie critics really mattered, maybe too much. As a result, I would never 
uh, I would have never used their names in the newspaper ads. The ads wouldn't read Pauline Kael or Judith Christ. They would say The New Yorker or New York Magazine. The critics possess too much power, and I would have hoped to spark a trend that the other studios might follow, end quote. Now, as a critic myself, as a, you know, as a, as the occasional, uh, you know, quoted in posters and trailers or whatever, I will say that my, my, I, I, I disagree with this slightly in the sense that it's better to have a relationship with a critic like the reader does because the readers aren't necessarily going to the New York Times and saying like, oh, well, the New York Times says this. Right. It's their preferred author. But maybe I maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It, it, I, I, and, and the other reason I wanted to bring this up is because later in the book, you mentioned um, uh, you mentioned that Clive Barnes had praised a show uh, that you had put on. But he did it uh, in. He had moved, I think, from The New York Times to The Post, to The New York Post. And because it was in The New York Post, it wasn't as prestigious. But if you were just, you know, if it was just Clive Barnes, it'd still be fine. Right, but it, but it was no. It, the, the answer was no. It wasn't. It wasn't about <laughs> Clive Barnes. It was about the New York Times, and and. But let's take one at a time. And I, any other issue you want to take? No, I'm, no, no. I'm that in. was it. That I'm, was it. Okay, I'm <laughs> in. I'm in. Uh, I was talking about a, the period of the 1970s and 60s where the critics had tremendous power, and it was ridiculous because. To me, the audience should be able to make up its own mind. So what I meant, though, was if you were talking about The New Yorker or New York Matt, there was only one major critic. So it wasn't as if I was taking that person's name totally away. People who read The New York Times or whatever, would, or The New Yorker, would know who I was talking mm -hmm. about. I just didn't like the idea that they were controlling, and they were. They had... It's not now. They, they don't even matter now in many oh. cases, you know, but it mattered tremendously then. It was it, too much was riding on it. And I, I was against it. And and I still I still am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me. I, so I guess. So I, you know, I obviously did not live through the 1960s and 1970s. I'm looking back on this possibly with a you know, uh, unearned nostalgia, this, this idea of the critic as somebody who can help shape tastes. But I, I, I do wonder if that wasn't better than what we have now, where the only thing that gets attention is whatever gets a 3000 screen release or gets an Oscar push. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, the critic today is lucky if they can get a hundred people to show up to see something that's playing at the local movie theater that isn't you know, on, again, 3,000 screens or 2,500 yeah. screens. If those were the two choices, I'd go back to using the critic's name. If those were the two choices now and then. I, I, I wish there was a third alternative, but I don't know of it at this point. Uh, so, yes, uh, what today, it's, um, as you say, very, very sparse as far as who will go and by the way, on the Clive Barnes thing, that was not for movies, that was for theater. Mm -hmm, and that right. was a whole different story. Sure. You needed the New York Times. And here's the funny thing, and I do write this in the book. I, I ended up producing a play called Vita and Virginia with Vanessa Redgrave and Eileen Atkins. And we were the largest hit in the history of Off-Broadway. I followed it with... Death Defying Acts, written by David Mamet, Elaine May, and Woody Allen, 
And that was even larger than Vita in Virginia. So I thought, oh my God, Sonny, I've been wasting my time in movies. I should have been doing theater. <laughs> I then immediately had three flops in a row, of course. Bam, bam, bam. But the, the next play I did after Vita in Virginia and Death Defying Acts was a play with Tom Courtney called Moscow Stations. And I was euphoric the next day when it, after it opened because the New York Times gave it a rave. I figured that's it. Well, I found out even the New York Times, with a rave, was fighting what appeared to be a play, one man, about a Russian drunken intellectual. <laughs> and I, they tell us, three strikes and you're out. Yeah. And sadly, we were out. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's a tough one. I, I, the, the world of Broadway has changed so much, too. I mean, the world of Broadway and off-Broadway, I, 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 I don't know that world as well. That's not my world. But I, I get the sense that, uh, you know, the, the, for lack of a better word, the Disneyfication of, of that, that space is more or less complete now. Yeah, it's a, a terrible change as far as I'm concerned. And one of the reasons I'm not producing very much on theater as I did I did about 40, 50 plays. So uh, first of all, Broadway has become, I guess, Disneyland in a way that 70 to 75% of the people who come to Broadway theaters are tourists. Never used to be that way. It was the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area that pretty much financed Broadway. And there was a small contingent of chorus, maybe 20, 25%. But now they're in charge, and you can see by the plays being produced that they're in charge because they're not Tennessee Williams or Eugene O'Neill or mm -hmm. Arthur Miller right now. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's, it's definitely. Um, again, it, it, not my world, but I, I, I can, I can feel the change just from, just from reading the paper and and the New Yorker and the New York Times and every book. Everywhere else, I want to talk about uh, something we didn't really get to discuss last time um, that I, I I wanted to to highlight uh, the uh, the no nukes concert. Oh yes, the no nukes concert. I am uh, so I for Christmas. This is just a happy coincidence. For Christmas, I received um, uh, the LP version of the Bruce Springsteen uh, performance uh, ad. It came out a couple years ago, but I I got it on record uh as a, as a present and i've been listening to it and it's great it's you know it's classic uh darkness on the edge of town era bruce springsteen that's wonderful um but i and then i went back and i was i was rereading the 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 brief mention in your book about it but you are also you're credited as a director uh on the film version of that so i could you can you tell i don't really have a good question here i just want stories i want stories about the no new <laughs> concert and uh and and what it was like to you know direct that film like what what your involvement was how that how that all uh came together well if that's what you want that's what stories. you're gonna get i want you're, stories you want i you know uncle sam wants you but sonny <laughs> wants me okay um Barbara Koppel, a wonderful documentary filmmaker and a friend, had uh, made a beautiful movie called Harlan County, USA. We had met. I got her a distributor for it, and we became friends. And she called me and said, I would like to do this concert I'm going to do. Would you produce it? And I said, well, tell me about it. And she told me who was in it, and Bruce Springsteen and James Taylor, Carly Simon, Crosby, Stills and Nash, the Doobie Brothers. I mean, Bonnie Raitt, a wonderful group of people. 
And I said, sure, I, I'd be interested. And, and so I came and I did uh, join forces with a man from the record business named Danny Goldberg, who was the, had been the president of Warner Records, Mercury Records, and he and I um, ended up producing it. Then Barbara, after she shot it, uh, we had Haskell Wexler as our director of photography and nine of the greatest cameramen you ever could see because we shot five concerts in uh, Madison Square Garden and one in the uh, uh, near Battery Park, uh, had the largest outdoor rally, I think, in the history of the planet at that point, hundreds of thousands of people. And then we was, were in an editing room with all this footage, and Barbara got another job. And she said, look, you, you, you know, you've directed. Do you want to edit this? I said, sure. So Danny and I ended up editing with our editor named Tony Anthony Potenza, Tony Potenza. Three of us then ended up, I produced it with Danny, and we directed it with Tony, all three of us. And uh, it was uh, one year. It took us one year to put it together. And uh, very proud of it. We sold it to Warner Brothers. And uh, it's a film that uh, Bruce, I don't think Bruce has ever made a movie. I think this is the, I may be wrong. This may be the only movie he's ever been in. And uh, Thunder Road and uh, The River uh, are two of the best numbers in there. And then Quarter to Three was just just tore up the place. So it was a a, a joy to do that film. Uh, We took no money. Uh, all three of us, no, Tony got paid, but Danny and I took no money. And uh, we ended open up in the finest theater in the city of New York, Cinema One. And uh, it was a, a wonderful and exhausting experience and something I would never want to do again. I, w- <laughs> I, I, I was living with a lovely lady at the time. And in the middle of the night during, I guess, halfway through the film, I woke up with these chest pains. And I, she said to me, are you going to die for no nukes? <laughs> so I didn't die. That was, uh, that's, let's see, that's almost 44 years ago. So here I am still uh, floating around, but not making concert movies. Yeah. And boy, when you work with musicians, the one thing you find out is there's something called rock and roll time. Mm. If you say, I want to meet at noon, and they come at two, and you get annoyed, they can't understand why you're pissed off. Yeah, yeah. No, I can uh, I can imagine what that is like. Uh, the uh, so uh, w- when you were working with the uh, when we were working with the artists, I mean, were you were you working on setup set lists like how uh, like how the thing would be shot? I mean, were they were they kind of protective over like, well, you can't you can't shoot us this way, you got to shoot us this way, like. How did that? How did that uh, work? That might have worked on a conventional shoot, but again, Madison Square Garden, eight or nine cameras. <laughs> you yeah. just yeah, you're just shooting from every different angle. No, they they were they were wonderful. The musicians were great. They didn't take any money. They really cared about the the the, the fear of the proliferation of of nuclear uh, uh, factories that were in many ways leaking, like Three Mile Island, and then years a few years later, Chernobyl. I mean, there there were not enough safeties on it. Now, thank goodness, there there is. But it yeah. it was a no. That never happened. The only thing that Haskell and we all did together was decided, and he pretty much decided where the cameras would be, where they would be. But they we had uh, so many cameras that four or five were stationary. They never moved, and four 
moved everywhere, up and down and around, backstage, but others stayed where they were. We wanted to always have the ability to have one straight shot to go to if everything else failed. Yeah. Uh, one one uh, thing that you, you wrote in your book, uh, and I, I, I think I have the quote here. Hold on. Uh, I, having been involved in almost every aspect of the entertainment business, I found that the people in the music business were the worst people to do business with. Now, this is not the artist necessarily, but what, what was it about dealing with music business executives that was uh, so, so awful? Well, we are, we're all living in a society where all of us at times seem to lie at times. Uh, there's different kinds of lying. There's, lie, there's blatant lies, and then there's the lie of omission, where you just don't say certain things that would change the fl- playing field. In uh, the record, my history with the record executives were that lying was the was the uh, coin of the realm. That's just what they did. You didn't get a straight answer. Whatever you were told invariably wasn't the case. But as I say, right now, uh, and I don't know if this is uh, historically changed when a president of the United States, uh, like Richard Nixon got involved and all of a sudden even a president could be questionable even though i think over the years we've had more than one that mm-hmm. is has been but this that really became blatant and maybe the whole so- the fabric of the society got worse i mean lying has been going on since the create creation uh including probably the garden of eden but yeah. i would say that it was the most blatant in the music business, then mu- then motion pictures, then television, and theater was where I met the finest people, the more educated people. Now, of course, this is a generalization. Obviously, there are great people in all phases of show business, but by and large, the people who decided to do theater, which is really hard to make a living uh, in theater, film, television, music, you can really make some real big money. Theater you can too, but it's uh, what they say about producing for theater is you can't make a living, but you can make a killing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, uh, anytime I look at the, uh, some of the blockbuster uh, uh, plays and the, the money that has spilled out of those, it's, it's, it's eye popping. Uh, yeah, sure. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that was that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Uh, what What do you think? Oh, you know what? There was actually I had one more follow up from our uh, from our previous conversation. How uh, How is your uh, interview series uh, oh, going? Well, thank the, you. Yeah, the I, entry. I, I'm doing like you are. I'm doing two podcasts. One is called Tales from Hollywood Land with two other producers, and we're talking about what it is to produce a movie today, what it was to produce a movie, and then we do things about Alfred Hitchcock and Billy Wilder and how do you produce it with different things. But my new podcast, which is just me alone doing in-depth interviews with some of the finest people in the business. And we we launched last week with F. Murray Abraham, and we're now doing Richard Benjamin. We have Twiggy. We're going to have David Mamet. We're going to have Robert Klein. We're going to have Sandy Duncan. We have Carol Kane. It's a great lineup of people that have agreed to come on and in some cases do what I'm doing with you, 
coming back after all these years to do another interview with me. So I'm quite excited about it, and it's uh, on Apple and iTunes and Spotify, and it's easy to find. Julian Schlossberg's Movie Talk. Everywhere, everywhere podcasts are sold. Uh, all right. So uh, that that uh, like I said, that was that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Uh, is there anything you think folks should know about uh, your audiobook? What any anything well, else? What else? It's it's pretty short. Could I read you just a little section of the audiobook, if I might? Yes. Okay. Please. It it comes in after the chapter on no nukes, so you'll see okay. why it matters after I had uh, co-produced and co-directed it. I wanted to produce a film on a novel by Dashiell Hammett, Red Harvest. The Hammett estate was controlled by Lillian Hellman. I had never met her, but since we had mutual friends, they arranged for me to visit her in a hotel suite in Los Angeles. I arrived on time, and I was shown in by a lovely female assistant. The assistant said she was so excited to meet me as she was a big fan of No Nukes. She was in the middle of describing one of the highlights of that film when we heard a voice screaming from another room, He's here to see me! I was quickly ushered in to see Miss Hellman. We talked for a long while. Sadly, the property I wanted was already under contract, but I enjoyed her company. She smoked continuously, coughed a great deal, and was quite funny. That was the only encounter I ever had with Lillian Hellman, but it wasn't the end of her impact on me. Three years later, she died, and then, strange as it may seem, she came into my life almost on a full-time basis, as you will hear. So that's a little trailer little <laughs> for tease. the book. Little, a little tease, tease yes. Yeah. That's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, I had recently read Red Harvest. Oh, God, for... for because somebody was circling an adaptation and I think it still hasn't been properly it, adapted. That's correct. I I, that I, is, at least not under the name Red Harvest. That's correct. And I must say between you getting <laughs> the Bruce Springsteen for Christmas and getting Red Harvest, we seem to be tied at the hip here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, Red Harvest is a classic, by the way. If ever, if no, if you haven't read it, it's, it is, uh, it's, it's a, Kind of foundational noir text. You, you gotta, you gotta check it out. I believe, uh, God, is it Yojimbo that is like kind of based on it? It's one, one of the uh, Kurosawa uh, films. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe not Yojimbo. I can't remember. Um, I might. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm rambling. Uh, no, no, no. It's. Uh, I'm trying to think if it. What was high and low based on? Uh, or high, the, who on. knows? I'm going to look it up right now. Hold on. Uh, All right, I, I can hold while while you're doing while you're doing that. I can tell you that I'm just about finished my second book. Oh, uh, good. Which is uh, I'll give you the title. It does, doesn't come out till the summer because I'm still tinkering with it. But the title is my first book, part two. <laughs> that's a good title that well is, it's uh, it continues title. the stories of the first book you know Sonny it's a very funny thing I was very fortunate to get terrific reviews and I'm, I'm just nice to say so but there was a bit of a backhanded slap here because what they seemed to like best was that every chapter was short <laughs> uh, I will say, as somebody who reads a lot of books, uh, there the, the 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 critics' curse is to be uh, given these. Uh, sometimes the books are very good, but when you get to these, you know, very long chapters, you know, we need little breaks. We're we're hopping between books, so that's a that's a structural thing that's 
You get. You should maybe consider keeping that oh, for book number two. Oh, but no! Don't even say it. I, 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 you know, I'm a believer. I mean, after all, if enough people tell you you're drunk, at least sit down. <laughs> yes, yes, that's. Uh, I've got that one as well. All right, uh, Yo Jimbo. I was right the first time. I didn't even oh, need to look good. up. Uh, so uh, the. Um, anyway, uh, we're, we are, we're off track here again. The, the name of the book is try not to hold it against me. A producer's life. It is out on audiobook Now, uh, you can, you can pick it up at Amazon. It's on audible, uh, or, or pick up an actual hard copy of the book. I'm still a, a hard copy guy myself. So it's, uh, it's nice to have in both or either. Well, what's, what's, what seems to be at least seems to be exciting for some people is to hear it in the author's voice. So happily that I have now an, a, a way that you can listen to it as I tell it. I will say I, I, I appreciate that myself. I picked up uh, I picked up Quentin Tarantino's book, uh, Cinema Speculation on Audiobook, and expecting him to have read it all because he read the opening chapter. I had read that uh, I, or I listened to the, the sample. I was like, oh, I'll listen to him do the whole thing because Quentin Tarantino has a very particular cadence and pitch and and but he only did the first chapter and I, I returned it i was like i don't want i don't want some random persons i want to hear tarantino doing tarantino Come yes on. it's true he didn't want to do what barbara did barbara streisand has a 48 hour <laughs> so that you can read that at your leisure that's a that's a that's a long one all right uh, Julian, thank you for being back on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sonny. Have a nice week, and I appreciate it, too. And I hope to be back on the third time with uh, my first book, Part 2. I'm, I'm excited to get you back on here. We'll definitely do that. Okay. Uh, again, my name is Sonny Bunch. I am culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys out. Mm-hmm.